We'll hear argument now on number 90, 1846, George F. Denton, Director of Corrections of California versus Mike Hernandez. Mr. Ching. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this matter is before the court for a second time. The initial decision, Hernandez 1, uh, announced an exclusive judicial notice rule for determination of frivolity under Section 1915D. We've had this case. This court summarily remanded, granted the petition, remanded the uh, case to the Ninth Circuit for determination in, uh, according to the then recent case of Nitsky. We didn't hear oral argument. We just no, held the case for Nitsky. Yes. You, you remanded it uh, for review in light of Nitsky. Hernandez, too, the product of that uh, remand, once again announces an, an exclusive judicial notice rule. This rule is contrary to the holdings of Nitsky and is contrary to the logic of uh, the interpretation of 1915 uh, in the line of cases this court has announced, uh, beginning with McDonnell and Syndrome, uh, passing through the announcement of Rule 38.9 and uh, the recent case of Zatko. The, it is my contention initially there is no justification for an exclusive judicial notice rule. The Ninth Circuit has fashioned this requirement out of thin air. It has no basis in law and is contrary to policy. Are you going to explain in a little more detail what is the exclusive judicial notice rule that you're referring to, Mr. Chang? Yes, Your Honor. The Ninth Circuit required that before a case could be determined as frivolous and uh, informal pauper status rejected, reference had to be made through judicial notice to some objective negating fact which positively countermanded the uh, allegations of the pleading. This uh, approach is contrary to that in Nitsky, in which this court required that, contrary to a 12B, uh, some uh, motion for judgment on the pleadings, a district court had to pierce the veil uh, and eliminate uh, the, pierce the veil of the uh, pleadings in the complaint and eliminate the fantastic and the delusional. Clearly, the Ninth Circuit rule fails as to the fantastic. There is no judicial notice to be made that a plaintiff is not Satan or Muhammad or a Martian. These fantastic cases prove that the exclusive judicial notice rule cannot be left in place. The present case presents the other half of Nitsky, the delusional cases. Within the corners of these five complaints is ample proof of a diagnosed delusional condition and of perceptions which not only defy the principles of formal logic, but also uh, defy common sense and, in fact, are perfectly predictable from the initial medical diagnosis in the record. This is an individual who is incapable of reasoning in an appropriate manner. We do not say that because he is ill, his complaints must be ignored. But because he is ill, 
his perceptual apparatus is seriously wanting. Well, Mr. Uh, Ching, do you take the view that the trial judge is to determine the credibility of the allegations made in a complaint, the factual allegations made, or do you take the position that the trial court should just determine what rational inferences can be drawn from the facts that are alleged? The, the use of the term credibility, I believe, is an unfortunate one. Uh, my point being that there is no evaluation of uh, a witness's testimony made. Uh, within the four corners of the five complaints. I mean, it would seem to me that in looking at the complaints here, that perhaps it could be said that uh, no rational inference of rapes could be made from the facts that were alleged, with the exception, of course, of the affidavits uh, submitted by Armando Esquire. What do you do about that, where he says he witnessed the, sexual assaults on the complaining? The, I agree with, uh, with you as to the evaluation that must be made of the unsupported allegations. The issue of the supporting affidavits does tend to lend credibility to the allegations that, well, that as to are referred that, to. Uh, do you think in the face of the affidavit of Armando Esquirt that as to that complaint, which is one of the five, that um, it can be dismissed? Your Honor, I would frivolous? say on, on its face, read without the context of the five complaints, it would survive a frivolity determination. And indeed, it might very well survive a 12b-5, 12b-6, rather. Uh, there is a range of rationality within the complaints. As to whether or not all would survive is a matter that I think is, at first instance, entrusted to the discretion of the trial court. However, the, the larger context and the context to which the magistrate referred in dismissing these complaints is that the, the, the seemingly rational is, in fact, tainted by the less rational contained but, in, in but the grouping. when you look at the affidavit of this third party, then it seems to me you're saying that the trial judge should just make a credibility determination as to that affidavit. Well, insofar as what the trial judge should be doing in evaluating a complaint, uh, he should be attempting to pierce the veil, whatever that means, in Nitschke terms. Nitschke states that a 12b-5, a 12b-6 cannot be based on a credibility determination. I believe there's an inference in Nitschke that uh, the court is entitled to go beyond the mere surface reading of it and is entitled to take both judicial notice and uh, to make rational connections amongst the parts of the complaints that appear before it. Um, the Can I ask, uh, was this dismissal here with, with prejudice or without prejudice? It was, it was, not, it was not formally stated to be either. Um, what do you, you, I, I believe that the Ninth Circuit intended it, I'm sorry, that uh, it, the denial of informal papyrus was all the court intended. 
So, so you you think that, uh, or were, so you think that um, he he could have uh, rebrought uh, any one of these complaints if uh, if he could uh, pony up the money for the uh, uh, for the filing fee and. Uh, Ye- uh, yeah. Yes, Your Honor, I, it is. I mean, that makes a big difference as as to what our standard is going to be. If all we're doing is excluding somebody from the from the IFP, uh, it seems to me it's one thing. But if if you think the uh, the dismissal means he can't rebring it, then uh, then maybe we ought to have a higher standard. The dismissal is a is one which simply denies IFP. I see no greater significance to it. The Ninth Circuit has, in fact, taken the position by requiring not only the objective uh, judicial notice rule but also the de novo review on appeal, and also the reporting requirements uh, to the inmate, that is, uh, reporting to the inmate how the complaint is deficient, that no subjectivity should enter into this process. I think that is fundamentally contrary to the position set forth uh, uh, in the cases that relate to 39.8, excuse me, 38.9, 39.8. Uh, and in any case, this court's rule regarding frivolity. Uh, for the, the term frivolous is inherently subjective. It is inherently judgmental. It, is, it, it can only be based... Well, well, do you read any of our cases as, as saying that uh, a complaint is, uh, is frivolous if, if it has a legally sustainable basis? Certainly not. This court has always adhered to the rule that the frivolous case is one that is inarguable in law or fact. This, uh, in a, a case that presented an arguable legal claim. Yes, it would seem to me that uh, most of the cases under 39.8 are c- cases that are just not sustainable as a, as a matter of law. Well, Your Honor, I, I do not. I, mean, I, I don't know what what precedential value you can get from those uh, from those cases. We haven't stated any standard to, to the contrary of what the respondent argues here. The, the standard set, set forth in 39.8 is the same that's set forth in 1915D and is perfectly consistent with any theory that this court has inherent power to order its own business. Uh, but the standard for frivolity in a petition for certiorari to this court may be quite different when applied on facts uh, from the standard of frivolity applied to a complaint filed in the district court. Uh, within the the terms of the rules, of, um, and of course the differing subject matter and jurisdiction of the courts, that, that may be true. However, uh, frivolous seems to have a unitary meaning within the three contexts. The 1915 use of frivolous seems to be the same as in 39.8. I, I don't understand the realm of discretion and subjectivity you're arguing. I, I take it you mean that what might pass one district judge wouldn't pass another? So I believe that that, that would be one consequence of a discretionary interpretation of frivolity. And yet I believe we have to entertain a discretionary interpretation of frivolity because there is no uh, substantial means to assure a perfectly uniform result in each application to the various district courts. The suggestion has been made by the United States uh, that the uh, terms used in Rule 11, not well grounded in law, are uh, interpretable or applicable to the, frivol- to the frivolity determination uh, in 1915D. Um, this is a rule that has 
uh, its basis in the arguments that were pointed out in the dissents uh, that the fundamental basis for requiring a frivolity determination is to ensure that an economically feasible litigation comes before the court. Rule 11 attempts to apply some kind of economic calculus to the actions of counsel in bringing litigation, and uh, it relies on, it has a well-formed case law, which in fact could be applicable to the determination of frivolity in this instance. Rule 11 is really premised on the idea of, of sanctions, um, frequently monetary sanctions, yes. uh, imposed against counsel perhaps, in some cases perhaps clients, and uh, the fact that one is seeking to proceed IFP pretty well negates the idea that, that sanctions of that sort are going to be useful. It's, it's my understanding that the United States uh, position uh, applies only to the importation of the, the test itself and rather than the utilization of sanctions. Um, certainly would be futile against indigent plaintiffs. Uh, however, the, the attempt to require plaintiffs to uh, make that decision or be held to that standard uh, is a unitary one. If the court has no further questions, I'd like to reserve my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Ching. Uh, Mr. Nichols, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, uh, Section 1915 is a statute of general applicability to poor persons. It is a statute enacted in support of a congressional goal that access to the courts should be equally available to the poor as well as to the rich. It is not a statute which applies only to prisoner or civil rights cases such as, as this case is. And as the Chief Justice has indicated, it is not a sanctioned state, uh, statute. In balancing the right of access under Section 1915 against caseload concerns that district courts obviously have uh, that moved Congress to authorize dismissals for frivolousness under the statute, it is desirable that district courts be afforded an objective standard. This is one of the substantial differences between uh, the petitioner and the respondent in this case. Uh, an objective standard pursuant to which they can determine whether particular factual allegations have an arguable basis and therefore are not frivolous. This court has already uh, partially determined an objective standard in Nitschke, namely the standard that the claim must have a, quote, arguable basis, unquote, in law and fact. Arguable does not mean reasonable chance of succeeding according to the viewer. Arguable, uh, in the view of the respondent, means whether any rational fact finder could conclude that the allegations are true. Arguable almost, you think of it as an adjective used to modify something dealing with law rather than facts. Uh, Certainly, that is the sense in which it is most frequently used, but the court's uh, definition of the standard in Nietzsche applied the same definition, arguable, arguable basis, to both law and fact. 
And it, it seems to the respondent that in trying to figure out what an arguable basis is, Mr. Chief Justice, that uh, a rational fact finder would be the uh, one to determine whether a particular factual argument is or is not arguable. Well, are you inserting a whole layer of some sort of uh, determination of, uh, different from uh, a motion to dismiss or a uh, motion for summary judgment? Uh. Uh, it's, it's essentially uh, essentially akin to a motion for summary judgment procedure, although not necessarily having to be brought by motion. Uh, the Nitschke case clearly establishes that uh, motions to dismiss and frivolousness dismissals are different, different in kind. Uh, and, and if I may respond to Justice Scalia's uh, earlier question, it is, it is the respondent's view, it is my view, that uh, a frivolousness dismissal, dismissal constitutes a factual determination of frivolousness which would preclude the bringing of a second uh, action on the same claims if, if the uh, plaintiff could... Uh, get together the uh, uh, money to pay the filing fee. And yet, Nitsky certainly allows the district court or the magistrate, whoever is the initial determiner, to probe beyond the surface allegations. You, you don't have to treat it the way you do a dismiss, where a motion to dismiss, where all uh, properly treated facts are treated as true. Absolutely. And so what, what more can the district court do, in your view, uh, than, than it can do on a motion to dismiss, which is virtually nothing so far as well-pleaded facts? Well, the district court can, can require a number of, impose a number of procedural requirements to require the plaintiff to get away from pleading conclusions and plead evidentiary material, uh, heightened, heightened facts, uh, so that uh, uh, the district court can determine prior to uh, the plaintiff coming in for an evidentiary credibility uh, determination whether the pleadings with those items of evidence would be sufficient to enable a ra- rational fact finder to, to conclude that there was something worth proceeding on to the credibility point. The, rule, the section as written contemplates some dismissals without further leave to amend or anything else, don't you think? Uh, it certainly contemplates dismissals without leave to amend. Uh, I suppose that there are some types of allegations that are so uh, outlandish on their, on their face that uh, no rational fact finder could ever conclude, no matter how much opportunity to amend was granted, that they would uh, that they could survive. Well, Mr. Nichols, some of the allegations here may fall in that category. Uh, I would suggest. Well, some of them, uh, I, I will certainly admit, Justice O'Connor, that that quite a number of them fail to survive a 12b6 test at this point. Uh, and it may be on amendment. Well, they may fail to, to allow a rational inference to be drawn as to some of them. Well, 
Mr. Hernandez has never been given an opportunity to amend in respond in response to the Ninth Circuit's view of what he ought to be able to do. We don't know what he might try to do by way of amendment. Look, if I may give you an example, uh, let's assume a prisoner says, uh, I was raped by Robin Hood and his merry men. Clearly an irrational uh, uh, allegation on its face. However, if you superimpose on that the possibility of a prisoner alleging that there had been a prison show about Robin Hood and some of the other inmates had kept some of the clothing and the other inmates in that clothing had come in, maybe it's not quite so irrational. What if and, you and the notice point uh, seems to me uh, is, is a, a kind of a due process thing that if you're going to throw a plaintiff out uh, with prejudice, he ought to have an opportunity to plead his best case. And when we're talking about pro se plaintiffs, uh, we can almost presume that they haven't pled their best case uh, in the first instance. Mr. Nichols, in your response to Justice O'Connor, you said that some of the allegations here would not survive a 12B6 motion, as if you were cons- uh, the that were a more extreme test than 1950. I had thought that just the opposite was true, that some allegations of fact that would survive a 12B6 test could be thrown out on the grounds of fantasy or delusion, and in a way that we have never said 12, a 12B6 motion would reach them. Your Honor, what I had in mind in, in, in response to Justice O'Connor was... Uh, Mr. Hernandez has brought in the the director of the prison system. He has brought in the warden, uh, and he has not pled anything remotely close to personal responsibility on the por- on the part of those people. I, but you you were not then addressing the 28 rape claims, uh, assuming well. I, no, I will I will I will t- go a little farther than that, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, some of the rape claims say, I suspect. Uh, I don't know who did it, but uh, guard Perdoni was on the shift at the time it happened. Uh, I would be perfectly prepared to concede that that does not constitute a sufficient allegation against the unknown guard or the speculative guard uh, to survive a 12B6 motion in terms of an allegation of personal responsibility for a specific act. Uh, but what the Ninth Circuit has done has been to say uh, a lot of these allegations uh, probably don't survive a 12B6, but it is the rule of our circuit that uh, as, as Mr. Ching has referred to it, the notice rule that before the Ninth Circuit will dismiss a case under 12b-6 with prejudice, uh, it requires that a pro se plaintiff be given notice of the deficiency and an opportunity to amend. Well, it, was this a dismissal under 12b-6? No, it was not. It, oh. This was a dismissal under 1915. Did, well, you, did you just misspeak yourself? No, what, what I said, what I intended to say, uh, Justice White, was that the Ninth Circuit 
in reversing the 1915 dismissal, mm -hmm. pointed out that many of these allegations as they stood would not survive a 12b-6, mm -hmm. but that the district court ought to give the uh, plaintiff, Mr. Hernandez, an opportunity to replead in light of its discussion of those legal deficiencies so that he could attempt to avoid those 12b-6 deficiencies. Well, what about, what about 1915? What did they say about 1915? Uh, they said that 1915 uh, uh, required them to be able to take judicial notice that no rapes occurred, and they could not uh, do that. Well, uh, is it, uh, the state is challenging that uh, standard for dismissing under 1915. Uh, the state, as I understand it, is, is uh, uh, contending that the district court has absolute and standardless discretion uh, to dismiss under um, 1915. Anyway, they uh, they disagree with the Ninth Circuit on 1915. Certainly. They do. Well, are you going to argue about that? Are you going to get to that sometime? Yes, uh, uh, Justice White. It is, it is my view that a 1915 dismissal uh, cannot be justified unless the court can make a determination that no rational fact finder could uh, ultimately conclude that the uh, allegations of the complaint are worthy of belief. And even Robin Hood and his merry men uh, is, is not, uh, does not qualify for that in, in, in your view? Uh, in my view, Robin Hood and his merry men without any other facts, mm -hmm. does not, uh, uh, would be dismissible under 1950. Would, would not? Would. It, it would? Yes. But what I am saying is why, that why if is you that? superimpose additional facts on top of that, then maybe uh, you can, you can uh, de uh, start dealing with a uh, mentally ill uh, prisoner who uh, perceives matters uh, perhaps a little differently than you and I might perceive them, articulates them a little differently. I understand, but what, what, what your bottom line is, I can dismiss it as a district judge. The guy comes in and says, I've been raped by Robin Hood and his merry men. If that's all he says... That's all he says. That's all he I says. I don't have to let him amend? That's, that's my bottom line. Why, why don't I have to let him amend? You, I'm, I'm sorry, if I, if I can back up for a moment, right. Justice Scalia. Uh, if that's all he says and he doesn't attempt to amend. Uh, if he attempts to, uh, he ought to be given notice, in my view, uh -huh. that it is the court's intent to dismiss under 1915 unless he amends to, to set forth some additional facts that carry with them an indicia of, of rationality. But uh, the uh, Ninth Circuit disposed of the 1915 issue on on the requirement of, of judicial notice. That, that's that's and, correct. And the remand uh, wasn't in connection with 1915, it was 12b-6. I believe the remand was on both issues. Well, what were they going to remand? Oh, I mean the remand for for uh, giving him a chance to amend they were was on 12b-6. They were going to give him a chance to amend to cure 
the 12B6 deficiencies and, and. to, and and. to uh, uh, amend to cure uh, what appeared to be irrational allegations as they stood. Under, uh, Under 1915. Well, uh, if, if one reads 1915D in connection with uh, motion Rule 56 for summary judgment in a civil case, Rule 12B6, motion to dismiss, it, it is supposed to o- open the possibility, one would think, and I think Nitsky supports this, of a judge before the complaint is served or answered at a very, very early stage to dismiss a certain small class of cases, even though they might state, if the facts were believed, they might state a legal claim. Now, if one tacks on the notice requirement that the Ninth Circuit is talking about, the leave to amend, it loses all its usefulness. A judge is far, a trial judge is far better off saying, I'll never use 1915, we'll just get the state to respond, file a motion for summary judgment, decide it that way. Uh, it seems to me with Mr. all the baggage that you say 1915 carries with it, it's virtually useless. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the, the uh, uh, posture that, that we take is that a district judge can do all of those things prior to service and prior to requiring that an answer or responsive pleading be filed by a, by a defendant. But the district court will have taken up a considerable amount of its time in doing those things. It would have perhaps taken less time to simply say, let the state answer, file a motion for summary judgment, we'll have that argued, I'll decide it then. Well, it, 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 seems, it seems to us, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that the, uh, the district court is required to take a look at each of the allegations. For example, in this case, uh, there are some allegations that uh, respectfully are not uh, uh, irrational, in my view, under anybody's test. No one doubts uh, that the district court must take a look at each of the allegations. But the question is, may the district court dismiss some allegations as frivolous without any ifs, ands, or buts about it? Uh, I believe that the district court may not do so unless and until a plaintiff has been given a knowing opportunity to present his best evidentiary case to the court. And if he can't pass muster at that time, then the district court can dismiss uh, without uh, having to have process served. What if, he, what if the court does all of that, and, and uh, after doing that, uh, 99 of the allegations are clearly frivolous. They are of the Robin Hood category. And, and there's one that, uh, yeah, it, it could have happened, most unlikely, uh, in the company of these 99 other absolutely uh, uh, mad allegations. Uh, the court has to let that one go forward, you think, in, and couldn't in, say this is a ridiculous, frivolous suit. That is our uh, view, Justice Scalia. The court does have why to let is that, that one go forward. It seems to me this, do you know any other provision um, that, that is phrased this way? If the, it doesn't say uh, it, it may dismiss if the action is frivolous or malicious. It says it may dismiss if satisfied that the action is frivolous or malicious. I, I, think I that, know of no other statute yeah. that has that. Don't uh, you think that has a flavor of, look, it, use your common sense, uh, District Judge. This, this, this is something that doesn't have to be accorded, the ability to bring suit without paying the filing fees. If you're satisfied that it's a frivolous suit, dismiss it without prejudice, 
And if he wants to pay money to make these frivolous claims, he can do it. Well, there, there's, there's two questions there, as, as I see it, Justice Scalia. Number one is that this is not a, dis, a, a refusal in the first instance by the district court to permit this complaint to be filed under Section 19A. District court did permit these complaints to be filed and specifically found that it could not find on the face of each separate complaint that it was frivolous. And the 1915D dismissal order was entered only after the district court uh, uh, looked at all of these cases, related them all together, and dismissed them on the basis of uh, one is not incredible, but 28 is, in effect. Dealing with a mentally disturbed person, and that there was not, not much reason to believe that any of these complaints was valid. Well, and it's, it would it, seem to me a very reasonable determination it, by the district court. It is, it is our view, Justice Scalia, that that uh, type of a rationale uh, puts you on the slippery slope of essentially denying to mentally ill persons as a class the right of access to the court uh, because any mentally ill person uh, is going to be uh, to some degree uh, uh, unable to, to state a claim uh, that would not be subject to that type of, of criticism. It's not a denial of access to the courts. It's, it's, a, it's a denial of a, the special privilege of being able to come to court without paying the money. Right? Well, you can, always, you can always still file it if you can pay the filing fee. But that privilege was granted here. This is, this is a second step after that privilege was granted by the district court. Oh, well, well, does the district court have any discretion under 1915A if the affidavit is filed? I don't read, the, the, read that section as requiring any determination of merit or likely merit by the district court. Well, there is an argument to be made, and I don't, I don't believe it is a proper argument, but there is an argument to be made that in Section 1915A, the use of the word may, the district court may authorize the filing without prepayment of fees, constitutes a, an empowerment to the district court to refuse to authorize such a filing, even if uh, the affidavit of poverty conclusively establishes poverty eligibility. That is not the case that, that we are dealing with here, however, because the district court in this case did grant leave. May I ask you a question, Mr. Nichols? I'm not sure that I understand your argument to be the same as the theory of the Ninth Circuit, and that's what I want to be sure I... Uh, it, is, it is not 100 percent the same, Justice Stevens. Well, specifically in the case of an allegation that what they would call fantastic or delusional scenarios, men from Mars, little green men doing things to some way, they wouldn't require notice to dismiss that kind of a complaint, well, as I understand it. Where I perceive my uh, uh, difference from the Ninth Circuit, Justice Stevens, is that the Ninth Circuit uh, relied on a judicial notice uh, concept uh, that the facts alleged were not subject to reasonable dispute. Now, that, to me, is an evidentiary test. And the test that I am arguing to this court is, uh, is a test that is measured at the stage of the fact finder or the ultimate determiner of the action, 
not an evidentiary test. And, and in that sense, uh, it is a test that is closer, I believe, to the summary judgment uh, test that uh, the court has articulated in Matsushita and Celotex. Uh, I, I'm still a little, little I'm sh- not sure we're on, on the same wavelength here. That's what's bothering me. In order to affirm the Ninth Circuit, one would not have to hold that in the category of fantastic or delusional scenarios, they treat those separately, that notice is required. You may argue that notice is desirable in those cases, but the Ninth Circuit didn't hold that. That's correct, Your Honor. And what they said, that this is a case which seems highly improbable, but there's enough corroboration, just so Connor mentioned the affidavit and some of these things, Uh that they they alleged 28 rapes, well, maybe one occurred, who knows, that you can't, you don't put it in the fantastic or delusional category, but in the factual category, then they say there's notice required. Uh, They, they... uh I don't know. I don't think the Ninth Circuit imposes a notice requirement in 1915 at all. Okay. What the Ninth Circuit I'm does do is to require that all of the uh, uh, alleged facts be, be uh, uh, considered to be true unless judicial notice to the contrary can be taken. Okay. And judicial notice, for example, would be if they're men from Mars, that's, we would take judicial notice that that's fantastic and we can dismiss without looking any farther. Right. But if you've got something that on its face is not totally improbable, you don't dismiss on its face. That's, that's absolutely without correct. Without requiring a response. That's absolutely correct, Justice Stevens. Mr. Nichols, your, your test is, what, is, is it's, it's an absolute, isn't it all relative? I, the men from Mars? I mean, Robin Hood's dead, I suppose, but men from there may be men from Mars, you know? We, do, do we really know that there aren't? Well, I think... I think if somebody came in with a paid complaint... Uh, uh, alleging some cause of action that uh, that depended upon that, and uh, you know, I think I think that's what judges sort out, Justice Scalia. So it's not an absolute it, impossibility test. It's it, just what seems to you to be likely or not, right? No, not not what seems to the individual district judge. Uh, what any rational fact finder could determine. I go back here. Uh, and I rest very strongly on the test in the summary judgment uh, cases that uh, uh, the rational fact finder is is uh, the test. And you you are irrational a- if you if you allow the possibility that there exist uh, uh, he, uh, creatures on Mars. You, you are irrational if you entertain that possibility. Is that? In the, in the present state of knowledge in this society, I think that is true. If you entertain the possibility? Uh, there is nothing that I am glad aware you of. I'm glad you were on board with Columbus. Uh, I'm sorry? I'm glad you were not on board with Columbus. I mean, they, you know, they, they would have said the same thing about the round earth, I suppose. Well, I... Uh, don't feel badly I, about this, Mr. Nicholas. <laughs> you can stick with it if you like. I, I, I suppose that Columbus uh, uh, was putting up some of his own money in connection with the ships that he sailed west on and not asking entirely for the, uh, for the crown's fisk on it. Spain didn't have a section 1915. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Nichols, uh, uh, it, it seems to me where you've come back to, though, is, is that you say this is the same as the summary judgment standard. I, I'm, I'm not sure that I... Discern any difference? I that I think that is essentially right. Where, and where it if is you say that, then that don't you run contrary to what we said in, in Nietzsche? I'm sorry, uh, Justice Kennedy. If you say that, isn't that contrary to our, our, our case in Nietzsche? 
where we said there is a difference. Nietzsche dealt with the distinctions between 1915D and 12B6, not distinctions between 1915D and summary judgment. uh, 12B6, you have to accept as true the facts that are alleged. Summary judgment, uh, you can probe those facts to the degree that if you conclude that no rational fact finder could, could support uh, a conclusion, you can grant summary judgment, even though there is a scintilla of evidence to the contrary. And that, and that, is, the, uh, that is the test that I am uh, uh, proposing. What, what is the standard of review? Do you, do you have a position on that? What, uh, yes, uh, uh, Justice Scalia. Is it de novo entirely or abuse of discretion? What? I, would, I would propose a de novo standard of review because what we are talking about here is judging the viability or non-viability of written documents. It's not like a Rule 11 situation where you're inquiring into the reasonableness of an investigation under the circumstances. Even though it says, if satisfied, the court may do it, if satisfied that the action is frivolous. Uh, it, seem, it, seems to, uh, it seems to me that the uh, uh, if satisfied uh, test of absolute standardless discretion would do precisely what Mr. Ching conceded to Justice O'Connor would happen, namely... Uh, allow a district judge in uh, Michigan to handle exactly the same allegations uh, as a district judge in Texas in completely opposite ways. And be the case, but that's always the case when you, when you apply uh, an abuse of discretion standard. If uh, there's discretion, it means things can be done differently in different districts. Well, uh, but you, you have no explanation for the words, if satisfied that then. It, it may as well have read, as far as your case is concerned, if the action is frivolous or malicious, which is not what it says. I, that's correct, yeah. Your Honor. I, I do not have a, an explanation for that. You don't defend the Ninth Circuit standard, uh, uh, and uh, I suppose we could, uh, if, if we don't agree with it either, I suppose we could just remand and say, say, make up another one. Or we could say, here's what the right standard is. And we could say, and by the way, the uh, respondent uh, proposed a standard that we uh, think isn't too bad. And so we're going to remand and have you d- decide the case under that standard. It, it, is, that, is that what we should do? Uh, I'd take it a step further, uh, Justice White. You would have us apply your standard up here? I would not have you apply my standard up here. I would have you remand the case to the Ninth Circuit with directions to remand it to the district court to apply that standard. Uh, or if we don't agree with your standard, whatever standard we come up with... Uh, should go back to the district court. Whatever standard you come up with ought to go back to the district court, and it ought to be a standard that is applied to each specific factual claim and not just simply to the complaints. The United whole. States seems to think that uh, the lower courts are at sea after Nietzsche. They don't, they're, they're all over the lot. Is that right? Uh, I don't know that I would argue with that. All right, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Nichols. Uh, Mr. Ching? You have rebuttal. You have 16 minutes remaining. Your Honor, I would suggest that the court was correct in stating that there has been an accretion of miscellaneous procedures, all of them unauthorized by law, such as the Spears and Martinez reports, 
such as holding these complaints in some file, such as requiring uh, or, in fact, encouraging fact pleading rather than notice pleading in these instances. These measures are inappropriate for this lowest tier of decisions to be made by the district court. The, Nitsky pointed out there is a difference between summary judgment and 1915D. Similarly, there is a difference between 1915D and summary um, and a motion to dismiss. 1915D has a purpose. It is presumptively supposed to do something. It is supposed to screen frivolous cases out. This is not a decision that uh, requires a panoply of procedures, nor does it require adversaries be summoned to report on the true facts of the situation. May I ask you, Mr. Ching, what your understanding of the Ninth Circuit rule is? Is it not true that they think there's a category of cases called fantastic or delusional that the district judge can just dismiss out of hand? Yes, but my interpretation of the words in reading both opinions is that fantastic and delusional must be established by judicial notice. Right. If they, in other words, they take judicial notice of the fact that even though it's possible, as Justice Scalia points out, the probability that there are men from Mars in this particular prison is sufficiently remote that the judge can take judicial notice of the improbability and therefore go ahead and dismiss. I, I believe I must disagree with that. It, it is a rational attempt to make sense of what the Ninth Circuit says. However, judicial notice is quite clear. We have a rule that states what judicial notice can be taken of. Well, it states that there is permissive and mandatory judicial notice available of such facts in a general group uh, uh, that are beyond question, uh, statutes of the United States. Which, uh, which negate the allegations of the complaint, is that it? Yes, and, and so uh, by extension, I find it very difficult to think that a court could, in good faith, take judicial notice that there are no Martians. Therefore, we're well, left. Put, what do you suppose we meant when we referred to it? That comes out of Nitschke, I think, the fantastic or delusional scenarios. It, think, what do you think we meant by that? I think the court did, in fact, mean Mars. Uh, we didn't mean judicial notice. Though. We you certainly did not, Your Honor. You meant exactly the opposite. You meant a subjective, common-sense uh, determination, ab initio, without an accretion of procedures. No, but, but what is it, uh, maybe I miss it in the Ninth Circuit, what, what is it in the Ninth Circuit opinion that tells us that even in the, the Martian-type delusional case, they're, they're, they're not going to dismiss? That the, well, I don't understand the judicial notice argument in, in that particular context. Well, uh, I'm, I must say uh, I find it very difficult to understand it as well. I, I, I thought what they said was that there are allegations here that have some factual support, and there's enough factual support that we'll send them back and have the district judge take a look at them. Exactly. Well, a judicial notice is the wrong term. What? Okay. Yeah, I mean, this they is don't the, use that term, do they? Uh, yes, they do. Do they? In both opinions, they're quite firm, and they refer to the rule itself. This is the problem. You're right. Yeah. Uh, the problem is the term of, term of art cannot be utilized in this context with any rational, uh, legitimate uh, administrative justification. Uh, there is no judicial notice possible uh, that there are no Martians. Hence, Mr. Uh, Hernandez will prosecute a Martian complaint. Uh, certainly, if it's well pleaded, it'll, it'll go through 12b-5, 12b-6, rather. If it's um, 
if the people cannot produce evidence, the defendants, that there are no Martians, it passes summary judgment. We have to go to trial and ask the jury what essentially the judge should have done in the first place. We will have to ask the jury whether it's rational to believe there are Martians who are prosecuting, who are with the aid of the Department of Correction. If they put a Martian person. on the stand, the jury might believe them. Very well. And, and imagine discovery. You know, um, the, the problems are, are rife. And the, the problems arise because the, the trial court, uh, under the Ninth Circuit doctrine, is not given sufficient leeway to make these rational decisions. And your point is if a, if a Martian uh, is, is, uh, can be determined delusional, it's, it's not too much of a jump to say that uh, these allegations of repeated rapes while he was asleep uh, uh, without his, uh, his awaking are, 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 are pretty close to the same category. I, I would say within the context of these five, yes. He supplied us his entire medical data. We know he's a diagnosed uh, psychotic. We know he's taking drugs for this condition. But what do you do about the affidavit of the eyewitness? I'm prepared to admit there is a range of possibilities with, that he can create, and he has created. Uh, any, any lawyer worth his salt can figure out which ones are going to have the best chance of success. Do you say the complaint nevertheless should have been dismissed in its entirety? Yes. I believe that... I haven't under... I don't understand that. There is, there is a smaller context, and with great solicitude, you can isolate any one of these pleadings and make sense of them. Uh, but it, you're not required to uh, interpret this in an isolated context. When the complaint comes to the court, it is to consider the whole complaint. But just because a fellow is psychotic doesn't mean he's not going to be raped. Oh, certainly not. Uh, my, my point here, though, is this particular psychosis is one that affects perception and the ability to deal and frame complaints uh, which have some basis in reality. Um, well, I'm perfectly pleased to submit the matter at this point. Thank you, Mr. Ching. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.